Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Inclusive democracy, very good. (laughs) Hi there, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage, which of course extrudes from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute in partnership with the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy. Well, 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 Donald Trump was right about one thing at least, big tech is bigger than mere government. Or rather, it's a very useful tool for populists like Trump until such time as they're banned or deplatformed. All he did really was try to overturn an election and incite a siege on the Congress when that didn't work, so I guess he has reason to feel aggrieved. But that brings us to Facebook. Speaking of being aggrieved, it's one of the world's most successful and most duplicitous companies. First it commandeered the word friend for its enormous commercial gain, and then it showed how little that term meant when it comes to its Australian users. The Facebook ambush on Australian users has meant news pages could not be shared nor their content loaded on Facebook. The implications of this have been far-reaching. Only this morning I heard a radio report of the news blackout this has imposed on Pacific Islander communities in places such as New Zealand and Australia, who rely heavily on the platform for local news from their homelands, news they'd have really no other way of getting hold of. Really quite disgraceful. And of course, we know that a number of emergency services and community uh, bulletin pages were also caught up in the initial uh, Facebook ban. Some of that's been restored, but uh, many, many things that have been designated news uh, remain. Uh, those, those websites remain black. All this because this clammy behemoth doesn't want to share the advertising revenue this news content attracts. The case raises myriad questions about data giants, journalism, fake news and the nation-state. Joining me this week are two deep thinkers, Professor Paul Pickering, historian and director of the Australian Studies Institute, which actually makes him my boss, by the way. Welcome back, Paul. Great to be here. And Professor Shirley Leach, professorial fellow with the Australian Studies Institute. Shirley, great to have you back again as well, albeit from a slightly traumatised Melbourne. 
Thanks, Mark. It's great to be out of lockdown. Yes, it's. Uh, I, I dare say it's been fairly... Um triggering event for some people that was the impression I got uh, from people talking to people in Melbourne was that uh, there was quite a different kind of I don't know um, public reaction to that snap five-day lockdown uh, than was the um, you know the quite legendary tolerance and cooperation that people mostly uh, displayed during the extended lockdown of 2020 um, was that your sense or is that just, um, uh, you know, purely subjective? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think there was slightly, well, slightly less uh, compliance. But the thing that I noticed was that on Thursday, uh, the bars and restaurants were absolutely overflowing um, down in St Kilda and Elwood with people who were just out celebrating the end of another lockdown. <laughs> Yes, I can imagine. And uh, it, it came right in the middle of the Australian Open itself, a fairly controversial decision to go ahead with that tournament. We you know, had the friction from the players at the start and uh, there was some community concern about whether it should have been happening. But in the end, it uh, it, it went ahead. It suffered uh, that period of literally having no crowds and uh, you know, came to its conclusion last night. So there, there does seem to be, um, yeah, a sense of great relief that it's over. But... It really just reinforces, Paul, doesn't it, that um, that we're vulnerable in at the moment to, to this these sorts of lockdowns happening again. Yeah, um, I thought it, I thought it was amazing that apparently all those people who had tickets to the finals were anti-vaxxers. I mean, all the booing and hissing that went on when the announcement that the vaccine was being rolled out was quite was quite amazing this morning. It just yeah, I, yeah, I, I was watching it last night, and I was I was uh, somewhat puzzled by it. I'm still a bit puzzled by it. Um, I'm not sure if you uh, know what we're talking about here, Shirley. But when Jane Herdlicker, um, the CEO of Qantas, and I think she might be the chair of Tennis Australia, although I could be wrong on that. But anyway, she was giving uh, an, an address, you know, at the awards ceremony at the end of the men's singles uh, final, and when she talked about. Uh, the vaccine rolling out, there, there was this quite strong uh, booing that uh, and hissing that came from this crowd, and it made you think: Are they upset? I, I mean, I, I the, when I say I'm mystified by it, I wasn't entirely sure they were anti-vaxxers, but perhaps they were. Yes, yeah, yeah, I saw it. Um, I saw it, um, Mark. And uh, one of the things that struck me, of course, was that Djokovic had been associated with some um, anti-vaccination comments in the past and you wondered mm. you wondered the extent to which the crowd who'd turned out to cheer him maybe were influenced by his comments. Yeah, and doesn't that just show the um, how precarious this all is at the moment? Um, I was noticing, for example, that uh, in Britain where the, the, the vaccination rollout has been you know, being done at lightning speed because essentially because they've have, had to, you know, they've stuffed everything else up. Uh, and I think uh, I heard this morning that one in three adult Britons has uh, already been vaccinated or at least had the first jab. And by July, they expect all uh, adults in, in the UK to have been offered a vaccination. Uh, so they're moving quite quickly. And yet there's a growing sense in this country, uh, and we can talk about this a bit later in terms of the... Um, the vaccination program, but there's a growing sense in this country that um, there are probably more people than we realised who are not interested in having the jab, uh, who have concerns about it. Um, 
And then, of course, there's the whole issue of whether we're going to be outrun, uh, in a sense, by variations, by variants of the virus, given how slow it is. Now, it's worth talking about this because today the vaccinations are, you know, rolling out. As we as we record this, uh, it's the first day of the um, administra- administering of the Pfizer vaccine, the uh, so-called 1A group. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, if that was an indication of where we are, uh, that crowd noise last night, it is a bit of a worry. Well, Nick Biddle here at ANU, the Centre for Social Research and Methods, pu- published some work last week which suggested that 23% were either against it or in the wait-and-see category. Mm. Um, now, I don't know whether that's enough for herd immunity or, or whatever, but it certainly suggests that quite a sizable minority of the population are not going to be at the front of the queue um, uh, getting the vaccine. Well, Shirley, what did, here's an interesting proposition. Scott Morrison's had the Pfizer jab now. Um, yes. Do you think he should have invited one, the leader of the opposition, to do so at the same time? If this whole thing is about building community confidence, about sending the message that this is safe and effective, that it would have been best to make it as as as, as apolitical as possible, as bipartisan as possible, but also to reach as many people. Um, should he have invited Anthony Albanese as, uh, as the opposition leader and perhaps even the leader of the Greens, essentially, you know, all, all of the political leadership? And should they even now be um, trying to get some key community leaders? Because if uh, if particular ethnic or religious populations have deep concerns or deeper concerns about the, uh, the, the vaccines, then it's going to affect the efficacy of the whole rollout. Look, I absolutely uh, would support that approach. I'm very concerned there are some community groups here in Melbourne, for example, who are known to have an antipathy towards vaccinations in general. And it is very worrying uh, that they may in fact opt out um, as a group from vaccination. It would be good to get as an inclusive uh, group of leaders as they possibly can to front up on media and give their support to the vaccination program. Yeah, I suppose with the way the government's done it, though, Paul, it's it's because they really, you know, I mean, whether they drag the chain or not, I, I I don't know. There are you know there are different versions of this. The government says it was operating in an orderly manner and that it took a portfolio approach to securing different. Uh, vaccines while they were in the development stage before it was known which ones would work better than others. But um, while there is this uh, kind of um, sense that the Pfizer vaccine is the best one and that the AstraZeneca and other vaccines aren't quite as good, uh, there's there's always the risk that the political class looks like it's looking after itself if it's you know lining up for the Pfizer and telling everyone else, no, you're going to get a vaccine which, according to the medical trials, doesn't quite have the same level of efficacy. Yeah, I think the optics of this were going to be a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Mm. Uh, I mean, Hunt said on Insiders yesterday, I think, that he had personally hand-delivered letters to Adam Bant and Anthony Albanese inviting them to get it. I don't know whether that's next week or not, but I saw Gladys uh, uh, Berejiklian getting it this morning as well. And I think there's a danger if the public sees the politicians 
queuing up to have the jab, that um, there'll be a sort of natural response to saying, well, you know, they're not frontline workers. Um, mm. well, uh, how many of them do we need to convince the community that it's okay? Yeah, it is. It's a bit of a balancing act really, isn't it? Because uh, there are there are strong concerns out there. I've read even of significant numbers of health workers, frontline health workers uh, who have doubts about it. Um, in fact, I think I was reading in The Economist over the weekend uh, about uh, one doctor who said that uh, a nurse he or she was dealing with uh, had refused the vaccination, even though that same frontline healthcare worker had observed people in ex- you know extreme uh, trauma and stress and dying as a result of contracting the virus. It's pretty hard to imagine the kind of logic that gets you to that sort of conclusion, but. Uh, there are doubts around, and so this idea of building confidence is obviously critically important. But I guess we're going to see how that plays out over time. I mean, I think, as I say, the real one of the real fears at the moment is that uh, because of our orderly process, and this is something the government's made a great virtue of, because of our orderly process, we might have been ahead of the world in, in our in our response to the coronavirus. We've certainly done very well with very low levels of of death and and now there's no community transmission right at the moment as we speak in Australia uh, but the rollout of the vaccine is actually quite some way behind a good many other countries and um, the danger of course is that these variants will arise um, they'll take hold in various places uh, and potentially in Australia uh, either before we've got the vaccine the current vaccine rolled out or um, or um, you know, although simply, or the vaccine will turn out not to have any great effect on them. Yeah, it's, um, I'm not proposing to influence anyone, but I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> me <laughs> too. And it would actually, it would be nice if they could actually think a little bit more about, you know, the groups that have been identified who have got serious doubts. And we're not talking about the extreme sort of anti-vax brigade. We're just talking about a lot of people who just are concerned about the safety because it's a new vaccine. If we could actually just identify the most influential people with those groups and make sure that they are publicly vaccinated and that they lend their support to the program. Yeah, yes. I agree. So this could be like cultural and religious minorities, for example, where there may be very strong belief systems and internal communication systems uh, where you know, doubts might be strong. Uh, there might be um, you know, a consensus that, it's not a good thing to do or that it's it's unnecessary or whatever and they yeah. look it's probably the case that the authorities are are um are right across this and are doing that kind of work it's not the kind of work which i guess is going to be done by necessarily by public browbeating or shaming or whatever it needs to be done by some pretty deft kind of domestic diplomacy and and as you say Shirley perhaps um by getting some you know, key community leaders and and significant significant figures to um, make a virtue of it and uh, show some leadership. Yes, absolutely. Let's let's go to this Facebook question. Uh, having having uh, you know obviously exercised our great expertise as epidemiologists as we as we just have. I mean, the country's full of them now. Why why not us? Um, but let's go to this question of Facebook because that was really um, obviously a a, a key key decision by the company last week to suddenly turn off uh, these news feeds on Facebook. 
The company clearly thinks that uh, it has a right to do so uh, and doesn't appear surely to want to be um, uh, you know, brought to heel by a mere nation state, by, by a mere government. Uh, it, it feels that it's bigger than that and that its product is, is, um, should not be taxed, I suppose. Yeah, I th- is that it? Yeah, well, I think I think it's um, a very complicated issue, and I think that's why people are struggling to understand what's happening. But if you take a step back, uh, the explosion of these digital platforms onto the scene uh, have have really left um, governments on the back foot because the existing legal frameworks, regulatory frameworks, just can't deal with what we're experiencing. So, I, I mean, I, I think it's a bit like governments have been trying to control a herd of marauding elephants with traffic cones. And, <laughs> and not surprisingly, it ain't working. Yeah, well, I mean, part of that, I guess, Paul, is because we've had this, this has sort of come about in historical terms quite quickly, this digital revolution, the emergence of these, of these enormous um, platforms, Twitter and Facebook and Google and, and the like. They, they, these are, are absolute... Uh, as I said before, behemoths uh, in in a commercial sense, uh, and they've come about really in a very short space of time. They have enormous reach all around the world. So you've got the speed of the change, which is itself a challenge for regulation, and they are by nature kind of supranational. They may be headquartered in the US or whatever, but their reach into these other you know, all over the world um, and their influence is. Um, it defies, I mean, information sort of defies state borders and um, and the profit of these things defies any specific, so far, any specific regulation or proper taxation. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple of really important issues in there. Um, one is that, you know, a lot of the people who've been um, advocating for uh, greater government control of... Um, media outlets and so forth have been for a generation preaching that the government shouldn't be controlling private enterprise and so that to the extent that Facebook has taken a commercial decision then that at one level is entirely in accord with the ideology that governments, Western governments have almost invariably been advocating for the last uh, 30 or 40 years so now to say that the government needs to bring um, a multinational company to heel is in a sense a, a, a U-turn of quite considerable uh, magnitude. I think there's also an historical uh, issue, and that is that you, the rapid development of media technology at particular points in time is not new. Um, and in fact, the government's... Ha- ha- since at least the 17th century at strategic moments have attempted to uh, silence media information provision and mostly they've done that through the imposition of a tax. Right, which becomes harder to do when you're dealing... Because th- those manifestations you were talking about before, the creation of newspapers in particular, was a very localised thing. Um, we, we used to have a lot more newspapers than we have now, right? Yeah, sure. Um, they, were, they were everywhere. Uh, Australia, I think I think you've told me before that Australia had more newspapers than just about anywhere else per head of population. Well, certainly within the British world, um, per capita, even though it was still a, officially a crown colony or convict colony, um, had more 
newspapers per capita than Britain itself. Um, so the proliferation of the printing press was um, significant and very quickly beyond the control of government. Let's take a quick break and be back in just a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Okay, welcome back. We were talking, Paul, just before the break about uh, the proliferation of newspapers and, 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 and you were kind of drawing out a historical precedent. We've had the rapid development of new media before, in the case of newspapers, for example, and I was making the point that whilst that's true, the analogy sort of doesn't work in the, sense, in the same sense that the, the thing about the internet is that it's global uh, and these companies are international uh, and they're certainly not headquartered here. Uh, they present all kinds of regulatory problems and their influence has been uh, rapid and sort of bottom-up, I mean, really. What we find, for example, is that around a third of Australians rely on Facebook's black magic algorithms to plate up their news these days. That is, they get whatever news they get from you know, these news media companies, uh, this third or so of the population is getting it delivered via Facebook and via algorithms that decide what those people should get in their feeds. Um, so that gives that, – that, that raises a whole lot of interesting issues, I suppose, in terms of the reach of the company and also the leverage that it feels that it now has. And that's what's driven it to this rather kind of dramatic decision to suddenly just turn it off rather than do what the government wanted to do, which was uh, – and which the law is going to require, uh, which is to make these companies that are going to run this, these, these, uh, news stories, um, make them reach commercial arrangements with the news companies that write them. Well, again, there's, I think, a couple of really key issues there. One is that people don't have to get their news off Facebook. They can get their news off, uh, the, the source platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, they can get their news off other, uh, platforms such as Google apparently is going to jump into this space in a, a big way. Um, and so what Facebook are doing is restricting access rather than the provision of the news. And so I, I think that's an important um, point. Mm. It is also clearly algorithmic. I should point out the Australian Studies uh Facebook site has been shut down. Yeah, one of one of countless uh, because it's been deemed to be a news site. 
I guess, for the, by the algorithm. Yeah, well, I don't know. How, well, surely, how would that algorithm work? The number of times that the word news comes up? Or? Look, I, I don't know. But I mean, look, I think it's really interesting that we're all still talking about news provision when this is not a stash about news. This is actually a stash about, um, about money, about ad revenue and where those dollars flow. Um, and again, if you take, you know, if, if we take a step back and look, and look at at 2017, when the Turnbull government um, abolished the cross-media ownership laws in Australia, they did so because they argued that traditional media needed this to survive the global internet giants like Facebook and Google. And what the, and it wasn't about news and news provision. It was actually about who could get ad dollars. Um, and if you actually say, well, why would you do that? Because Australia already had one of the most highly concentrated um, traditional media ownership um, markets in the world. Um, there's no ready answer to that. So what, what was the problem they were trying to solve? It was about dollars. It was never about, you know, ensuring that Australians um, uh, received, uh, you know, or, uh, or protected the public interest or protected public interest journalism in Australia. Yeah, I think I, I accept that point, but I think they it, it sort of winds up in the same place anyway, does it not? Because the, these commercial news companies are basically saying that their business model is dying and that they are on the edge of viability uh, because they're being gouged by these enormous platforms that are essentially stealing or, or, or monopolising what... Ad, ad revenue there is there without carrying the primary costs of, uh, of actually creating this news content. Yeah, and that, and and that is true. But is, is, the, is the problem that, you know, the payment of um, money or is the problem the fact that you've actually allowed the growth of monopoly capitalism in this area um, in a way that has not been allowed to happen in other industries? Why? Are digital platforms special and different, and why should they be excluded from the kind of controls that governments have traditionally put in place over industries? Well, it's a good question. I mean, it's gone down this path of uh, wanting to uh, have or requiring media companies to enter into good faith bargaining with um, with these platforms. And that if those uh, those deals cannot be done over, I think it's a ninety day period or some sort of period like that, uh, then um, the, an arbitrator can determine what the the the, the uh, commercial value of that news content should be, and that money would then flow from Google and Facebook and others uh, to News Corp and to Nine and Seven West Media and whoever else is is. Um, is entering into these deals now. Google's actually um, entered into deals now. I think with um, all three of those companies. So it's interesting that one of them, one of the sort of uh, data giants, is there. But Facebook's playing uh, playing hardball here, and maybe it's figuring that uh, you know, like Paul said, I mean, people can get their news el news elsewhere. People will stay with Facebook if they're not getting news on their Facebook feeds. Then. They're not getting news. They'll, they'll mostly either just not get news or go somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's right. And Facebook are also arguing that they're fundamentally different uh, from Google because 
uh, people have, don't really have much choice about whether or not their sites get caught up in the Google search, um, right. whereas people voluntarily, news organisations voluntarily put their pages up on Facebook. Yeah, that's a very good point, and that's what that's what Facebook argues that point. It says, hang on, so they post their material onto our platform, and now they're telling us that we have to pay for it. Uh, so can- it, it, is that because they... They understand the, the, the news media companies that this increases the circulation, increases their brand, um, and and therefore their influence. So, uh, is the government and somehow, well, the government and us by uh, at one remove getting caught up in a war between media companies here? It, uh, is it about the public interest, or is it about uh, you know a, a commercial? Uh, a stoush about who owns what. <laughs> it's a good question. I know Malcolm Turnbull, who's uh, had a bit to say about this, uh, takes the view that perhaps the government is, is is taking the wrong approach and that a simpler way to do it might be to just tax these companies more. I think he might be suggesting a specific tax that would apply to these large internet platforms uh, and then the revenue from that could be directed back to public interest journalism. What do you think of that idea, Shirley? Well, I mean, there's there's a few things. One is that they are they are again coming from a starting point of accepting that these giant monopolies should continue to exist. And for example, why do you need this code, which which introduces sort of a mandatory arbitration if if voluntary agreements can't be reached? It's because you know that the power imbalance is um, sitting on the side of, say, Google and Facebook. Uh, Why do you think you've got to um, bring in sort of like a super profits tax, if you like, for these platforms? Mm. Because they are monopolies. Well, what then is the marauding elephant? The marauding elephant is actually the monopoly position that these companies enjoy. And, and that is what they are all um, sort of sidestepping. Well, uh, it, it's interesting. Australia is leading the world here, as indeed we've had a bit of a tendency to do on some things, although not on others, I notice. Uh, it's been pointed out to me by someone just yesterday that uh, um, we, we seem to take the view that we don't need to lead the world on climate change because that would be harming our, our best interests. But then on some other things, the government's quite assertive on leading the world, uh, the coronavirus origin being one and and this being the other. That said, there are other countries around the world who are watching what Australia is doing very closely here. There's been uh, positive uh, support coming from within the, uh, the the UK government. I think Canada has indicated it wants to essentially go down the same path that Australia is going down. Um, I think Europe, Paul, is um, also very keen to do something here to to uh, rebalance the situation against, as, as, as Shirley points out, against these giant monopolies. Um, but my understanding is that the way they're looking at it is more of a kind of a copyright, um, you know, stiffening the copyright rules, essentially uh, saying if you didn't write it, you can't publish it, at least not without paying for it. Um, so I don't know, uh, you know, is Australia the sort of canary in the gold mine or <laughs> voluntarily... The canary in the go in in the coal mine is probably not the right metaphor. It's uh, it's more like we're we're one out at the moment. Um, I'm wondering 
does this need to be coordinated? There's some big meetings coming up this year, as we know. There's a G7 meeting in June. Uh, the Prime Minister's already made it clear that uh, he expects to be discussing this at that at that meeting. So, um, Well, it, it just seems to me that, uh, I mean, we had the minister in the Johnson government on um, saying how much they supported Australia and they got the obvious question is, well, what are they going to do about it? And the guy started mumbling and <laughs> guffawing and um, dissembling. Uh, because I don't think they know what they're going to do about it. And uh, Europeans, I mean, I think the idea of uh, copyright law is, you know, a, a trail of tears. I mean, the Europeans' uh, cross-border copyright laws are a terrible mess. I mean, they can't even work out who owns the copyright when you own, when you buy a video. So how are they going to dig into this in any meaningful way? I, I don't know. And they, they're going to come up in... Uh, in, in spades against the uh, un, almost untrammeled power of the media that uh, outlets themselves to influence public opinion. Shirley, do you think it needs to be a coordinated um, approach rather than, uh, you know, single countries like Australia taking it on or, 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 is, or is that the right way to go anyway? Yeah, I think a coordinated approach would be an interesting one. But if you're actually looking at the trailblazers, I mean, I'd take a look at what they're doing in Texas, where they, they've filed a complaint alleging Google has monopoly power and forecloses competition in US markets. They've been accused of things like price fixing and tying arrangements. And they've also been accused of having um, an unlawful agreement um, with uh, Facebook and to engage in deceptive trade practices. So to me, that's the case to watch. Yes, that's uh, that's an interesting one because that's, that's a state uh, within the United States uh, taking on Google. Uh, it will be interesting to see what, where that goes and what sort of influence it has on US law. I guess the, the Biden administration will be interested in that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I still don't think we should underestimate the power of the... Uh, the internet platforms to fight back on this stuff. I mean, we all cheered when Trump got shut down from Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. But who decides who gets shut down? And when do, when do those voices within the community and within our democracy who should be in the public sphere start to get shut down? And I think there's a, there's a, you know, a really dark, uh, potential here, um, ominous potential for, uh, you, you know, it's, uh, who, who is it that decides what, who gets taken off Facebook or not? Yeah, it's a very good question. And that, I think, has worried some people, the question of, of free speech. But these are, these are private companies. These are private platforms. People participate in them voluntarily. Uh, and just like, you know, you can't, you can't decide you don't have a right to uh, to appear on the pages of the Australian or the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, that those those are private companies that decide that, and in a sense, that's no different from from Google and Facebook and Twitter. Twitter perhaps is a slightly different example, but even Twitter, you can be, as we know, Donald Trump was uh, removed from there as well. So, yeah, it's a really interesting one in a kind of a regulatory sense. Is 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 support for this essentially, do you think, coming from at least to the extent that it comes from the left? Is it 
because it's well recognised that without a news, without a reliable news media and the prevalence of verified fact in our news feeds, that we head down the sort of path that Donald Trump was trying to take the US down, uh, using those very social media devices to to do it. I mean, he effectively fomented a um, a huge upwelling of um, resentment over the American electoral system and incited that riot and he did so basically using twitter so there's a there's a you know it's not just a financial issue here there's the kind of stability of of democracies themselves yeah look i i agree with you completely there mark i think uh one of the ways in which um trump was so clever was that every time it looked like facebook or twitter or one of the other platforms was going to uh start controlling him or censoring him in some way he would start talking about antitrust suits. He would start talking about yeah. attacking their monopoly status. And it was very interesting that he stayed on Twitter right up until the point when he was, um, you know, he'd, he'd lost the presidency and then he was gone. Um, so at the point in which they believed that he wasn't able in a position to follow through with those threats, he was gone. And that's why it's also interesting that this case against uh, Google has has arisen in Texas. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? I, I must say I hadn't thought of it in precisely those terms, that it was only after he was not in a position to retaliate in a legislative sense that they showed a bit of spine, given that he'd been using Twitter for the promulgation of, of uh, you know, fake news, uh, just an absolute avalanche of lies, uh, since before even becoming president. Well, and it also begs the question about, well, h how bipartisan are these um, attempts by government to regulate um, the digital platforms going to be? Ultimately, is it like going to be going to be like the you know you have to play with Murdoch before you get elected mm. is it going to now that transfer into you know you have to play with Google whoever Google is um, in order to to get elected when is the bipartisanship about this going to break down yeah that's an interesting question as well because you're dealing with these algorithms effectively the, the way the algorithms are written can have uh, such a strong material uh, influence on on communications, on if you're if you're the opposition, for example, and you can't get a run, uh, well, you're not getting a run for your for your um, messages. Uh, perhaps uh, that may be. Who, who do you complain to? Do you complain to Google? It says, "Oh, we're just a search engine." Um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of big questions here for for democracy, and it seems like those questions aren't going to go away. Look, just before we go, just a couple of uh, sort of final quick questions on this. Do you, do either of you think that that Facebook has overplayed its hand here, or I mean, do you think that it will back down, or is that just inconceivable? Well, Should I think that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, uh, I think this has got a ways to run, and I think there are lots of conversations happening in the background. What do you think, Paul? Well, I just think it's going to end up being um, resolved in a way that looks like it's. Uh, that every side's been uh, happy. Um, they've saved Facebook. Yeah, I yeah, they've saved Facebook. Yeah, well, you beat me to that one. <laughs> Sorry. No, I was just going to say again, in in terms of the historical perspective that we've got here, uh, governments in the 19th century chased printing presses 
relentlessly uh, through stamp taxes and so forth, ended up giving up, didn't lose, look like they'd compromised, um, ended up being the big users of the printing press in terms of p- political campaigning. And I can't help thinking that somehow we're going to end up in the same place this time. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, if you think about those early newspapers, they mostly begin as kind of radical anti-establishment type things, but their their owners eventually become wealthy insiders and supporters of the establishment, pretenders to it. And there's a very strong, uh, you know, that's a very strong theme running right through the development of, of uh, mastheads in Australia, the ones that survived. Um, the uh, you know they go from left to right and you can sort of see that that typical trajectory mm. uh, it'd be interesting to see whether we have a, a similar process here i mean the difference one of the differences is these these data giants they they you know they proclaim the idea that they are really the sum total of all of their users you know that, that's that's one of their key defenses isn't it uh, you can't do me for defamation because it's not me who's saying it i'm just the I'm just the platform, I'm just the rails on which this train is running or whatever it is. Yeah, and I think one of the other things to remember is that this whole fight um, has been done in the name of public interest journalism. And I think it's worth watching carefully that even uh, once revenue does start to flow, for example, from Google to the various news organisations, whether that actually results in a net increase in public interest journalism. And you really only have to look at the fate, for example, of the ABC over the last couple of years uh, to really seriously question uh, what the commitment to public interest journalism is here. That's a good point too, isn't it, Paul? Because the, these other companies, leaving aside the ABC for a moment, they are private companies also. So it's not like, I mean, if you, 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 can, you can see the revenue directed there, this transfer from the big data platforms to, to those media companies, but but the state, the government has no dog in that fight in terms of whether they spend that money on hiring more journalists and doing, you know, putting more resources into investigative journalism and the like. No, absolutely. They end up paying huge bonuses to the people who run the companies. I mean, Precisely. We've seen that with the JobKeeper, really. I mean, you know, public money going straight from the government into these companies, paying bonuses and and uh, share dividends. And at some point they'll all sign up to a, a feel-good code of conduct that's full of platitudes and you know it'll just be uh, game on as usual I think in this in this sense the the only hope that I think that we have still is that uh, that we have an independent ABC that's out there saying uh, giving a, a a more balanced perspective on on these issues and a few podcasts and a few <laughs> podcasts even though we might get taken down yeah that's right Well, look, uh, thanks very much, Paul Pickering and Shirley Leach, for uh, your thoughts. It's been really terrific having you back, both back on uh, Democracy Sausage, and we'll look forward to doing so again very soon. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Pleasure as always. And that's Democracy Sausage for this episode. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.